All right, we're in Isaiah chapter 63 this morning. If you'd like to turn there with me, please. Isaiah chapter 63. And we'll actually be in chapter 63, chapter 64, and chapter 65 today. Uh, we actually are covering all of those chapters, chapter 63, chapter 64, chapter 65 today. Seems like a lot. If you look at your Bible, it's not a, not a ton of text, but here's the thing, is that there is a kind of a seamless um, situation here happening. And I think that if we understand the idea of, of what's being portrayed for us, all of these go together. And so uh, to take them apart, I don't know, would serve a great function for us in our time together this morning. So we're going to take this section together. And as we do. We're going to keep joy and gladness on our minds this entire morning as we read all this. Joy and gladness. And if we can just think for a second, maybe not even think, but feel this morning. Don't we all know genuinely that what we want most is joy and gladness? Isn't that what you want? Now, many of us define joy and gladness different, don't we? Sometimes we, sometimes we do, but do you know that God knows what true joy and true gladness are, and he has actually provided that. He has provided true joy and true gladness. It's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it, when you pursue true joy and true, what you think is true joy, what you think is true gladness, and it just very much disappoints you. Or when we experience those things in life that bring about grief that seem to rob us of our joy, rob us of our gladness. And in those moments, what do we ache for and we long for? Only to be satisfied and only if we could have joy and only if we could just have gladness. This is what we want, right? Keep this in mind as we read our text today because I promise you, this is where the text is going. It, it may sound different at first, okay? But I promise you, this is where we're going. Okay, let's look as we begin at the first few verses, verses 1 through 6 together. And as we do, I do have an outline for you so that hopefully uh, we all stay on track as we're covering quite a bit of text today. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page together and that I'm not losing anyone. And so what you're going to see in each of these uh, numbers here on the outline is you're going to have your text, kind of the idea of what's happening, hopeful reflections here in the first six verses, and then kind of what's being thought about and what's being created. And what's being created here is a sense of confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence in God's future actions. So as we're contemplating the future, thinking about the future, reflecting over the future, uh, it creates a confidence. And uh, confidence in what? A confidence in God's future actions. And so each of these concepts are going to be presented in the same way for us this morning. So here's what we see in the first six verses. Chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So that's a question. Who is this one who's coming? And uh, by the way, if you were with us last week, who would be asking this question? A watchman, right? A watchman on the wall of the city whose job it is to look for who's coming. And so he sees one coming, right? A warrior coming. And this warrior is in crimson garments, and he's coming from the direction of Edom. And so uh, the question is asked, who is that? And the answer is, well, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, we know, we know who that is. And then another question, well, why is your apparel red, and why are your garments like, like his who treads in the wine press? So, just get that imagery. You've got to go back to the old-timey wine press, though. I've never actually seen one myself, but I have in my mental imaginary what a old-timey wine press would have looked like a couple thousand years ago, right? And so we can imagine that. What would that have looked like? Well, the big vat, and what you do is you put all the grapes in there, and how do you crush them? You get in it. And uh, normally, though, you don't do it yourself. There's a bunch of people in it, and I can only imagine they're just stomping around, I mean, having a good old time. Probably some music would help, right? So they're, they're just crushing these grapes, and what would happen as you're crushing these grapes? Well, it's all splattering all over you, right? I mean, we can imagine that, can't we? Um, so uh, why, why do you look like that? 
I mean, you just came from battle, didn't you? Or, or you came from Edom. What, what's going on? Why are your garments red? And well, he says, well, I have trodden in the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. Or you have that image? A guy in a winepress by himself? And then he says, I trod them in my anger and I trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood was splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Uh-oh, so we know that he wasn't actually crushing grapes. There were people in his wine press. And why his garments are red is because he has been killing people and their blood is splattered all over his garments. This is the situation. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. We'll stop right there. Joy and gladness are coming. But do you know why such a situation must present itself is because this is the human condition and this is the reality is that there are kind of two options presented to us, aren't there? And there is either this miserable, horrible image or there is the image of joy and gladness. But here actually is what's happening is that without this situation happening, occurring, without the mighty one in battle, there would be no joy and gladness. Without the work of the mighty warrior, there would be no joy and gladness. Now, you remember all that we've been saying about God's cause for Zion, right? What is he going to do to protect Zion? He's going to take care of all of the enemies, and that's what we just saw happen. Now, if you want to live in that wonderful, splendid, protected peaceful city of righteousness, then your enemies have to be put to death. And there is one who's going to come and do it. And it's not going to be a pretty sight. Right? This is what's happening. Now, why is he coming from Edom? Um, I, I think just this helps if, if you're not already in this mindset here. We had Ab Abraham, who the promises were given to by God, right? And then he had, a, uh, well, a couple of sons, but uh, Isaac was the one who the promise was made to, and so the promise came through Isaac. And Isaac uh, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau and Jacob, that's confusing. Who came first? Well, uh, what happened here is that the two sons, uh, well, there's a whole situation. I'm not going to go into detail about that. Jacob ends up being the one who receives the promised inheritance, even though it should have been Esau. Okay? And later on, their names are changed, and their names become representatives of all their descendants after them. So we have the nation of Esau, who is also called Edom, which becomes a people and a nation, Edom. But likewise, Jacob, his name is changed to Israel, but it becomes representative of a nation, a people. Well, we know that one. But on the other hand, there's Edom. Now, Edom, the people of Edom, kind of become uh, enemies and representative of the enemies of God. Um, over time, and they're, they're kind of always at odds with one another. And actually, in the siege of Jerusalem in 586, which is coming, which is on the mind of the author here, uh, which is coming very soon, Edom, who is to the, south of to the south of Judah, which was already south, right, in Israel, and then even further south was Edom. And when this happened, the Babylonians were coming, Edom who wanted the land that Israel had. Why? Because their brother, long time ago, got that land, and they always thought that that was their land. You got our inheritance. And so they were kind of at odds with each other, right? Well, when the Babylonians came, they saw this opportunity to take that land that they thought was theirs. So Edom comes, and they assist the Babylonians, and they then want to dwell in that land and take it as their own. All that kind of makes sense? Anyway, what's all that's being said here is that Edom is definitely seen as an enemy of the people of Israel, even though there's also a family relationship there, right? Um, I want to read for you out of Isaiah 34. This isn't the first time we've seen Edom in our text. Isaiah 34, beginning in verse 5, and it says, 
For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword, and it is sated with blood, and is gorged with fat, and the blood of lambs and goats, and the fat of kidneys of rams. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. By the way, Basra is the capital city of Edom. So uh, say the name of the capital city, and you're basically saying the name of the whole nation of the place, right? Just like if you say Jerusalem, you're talking about Judah and the whole land that surrounds it, okay? Uh, Wild oxen shall fall with them, young steers with mighty bulls. The land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur. Her land will become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke goes up forever from generation to generation. It lies waste. No one will pass through it forever. You get the idea of what's going on here? These are not kind words towards the people of Edom, okay? But what we find here in our text is that there is someone coming from Edom, and there is a watchman, potentially in Zion, right, in God's place, and he sees someone coming from Edom, and so for him, this is great news. Why are you coming from Edom? You might have good news for me. And why are your garments all red? Did you just defeat all of our enemies that we've had? And he says, yes, I did, in fact. Okay, so who did he trample? Well, we know the righteous one who is mighty to save. We know that's God himself, the redeemer, the servant of God. We understand that. Who did he trample? And all this blood that was all over his garments, who did he just slaughter? Who did he throw into the winepress of his wrath? Simply put, it is all those who do not belong in Zion. If you do not belong in the city, then you are outside of the city. And if you are outside of the city, you are an enemy of the city. And this is where you will be found. And if you are found there, you will have the wrath of God on you. Okay, does that make sense? So the attack on Edom is a general attack on the enemies of Zion, the enemies of God. Okay, so far? So this is the first six verses, and it's basically hopeful reflections for the future. What you have to see in this text is it's, It's someone sitting and imagining and hoping what God will do in the future to deliver them, okay? So this is not a recording of actual events that you're looking back and seeing what happened. This is a person sitting and hoping for the future of what God will do for them in their moment of distress. What they're hoping the scene is in the future is that they will look and see one who has blood-stained garments coming from Edom destroying their enemies, okay? That's what they're hoping for, and that's what they're thinking about. That's why this is hopeful reflections. And this is creating in them a sense of confidence, right? You think about the future, you think about what God is going to do, and it makes you confident. Yes, this is what God's going to do. One day, he's going to come from Edom. He's going to be stained blood or stained red with the blood of our enemies, and all is going to be good, all for the cause of Zion, and this is what we want. So it's thinking about what God will do in the future, okay? So hold on to that, and we're going to move to another scene. Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 14. So again, we have some reflections, but this time the reflections are not hopeful reflections for the future. They're more so sentimental reflections that bring about comfort in their hearts. So confidence is one thing. Comfort is another thing, but they, in a sense, go together, don't they? You feel comforted. Why? Because you have confidence. So Looking forward to what God will do brings confidence to them. But as they have kind of this sentimental reflection, they're looking all, they were looking to the future, and now they've kind of turned, and now they're going to look at the past, at what God has done in the past. So the present has not been dealt with. You all following me? Okay, so he's looking at the future about what God will do. Yes, please do that. And now he's going to turn and he's going to look to the past and say, look at what you have done in the past, God but the present has yet to be dealt with. Are we there? So look at verses 7 through 14. I will recount, recount what? The steadfast love of the Lord. And by the way, did we not just sing about the steadfast love of Christ toward us? We're going to get back to that in a second. The praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, the great goodness of the house of Israel, that that he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he has said, 
Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself, uh, and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go to the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Okay, so remember what's happening here in this text is a looking back, a reflection, kind of in a sentimental sense, a reflection on all that God has done for his people in the past. And we just read about that, right? And at this time in history, what is the one singular event that they would always go back to to say, remember that time, you have that moment, by the way, in your life. There's like kind of, you just always kind of go back to that big moment. Remember that time when God, and it's kind of that big thing that God did in your life. Well, for the people of Israel, the big event that they would constantly go back to is when God delivered them from Egyptian captivity, from Egyptian slavery. Do you remember that? And all that God did there and all the wonderful, miraculous activity of God back in Egypt. And so for years, for decades, and then for centuries, the people would reflect back on God's saving activity when they were at the depths of despair. There was nothing they could do to deliver themselves. And so God came along and he had a man, Moses, that was mentioned here, wasn't it? And God gave strength to Moses in his right hand and what did he do with that? What did Moses hold in his right hand? A staff. And with that staff, he was able to do many mighty things. And God delivered them, including parting the Red Sea. And the people came over. And what happened to their enemies, by the way? God killed them. So if you are being attacked by a foreign army, wouldn't you reflect back on when God delivered you from a foreign army before? And when God slaughtered the enemy then, you're looking and saying, God slaughtered the enemy today just like you did, just like you did back then, will you not do that now? No, we know what you did before, and so this brings comfort to us as your people. You see how all this works? So we're looking forward with confidence and hopeful reflections of the future, and then we look back at all that God has done in a sentimental way of how God has cared for us, and it brings comfort because of what God has done in the past. And how did he act in the past? Why did he act in the past? It says in our text, if you look at the end of verse 14, you led your people for what purpose? To make for yourself a glorious name. Why did God act? For his own namesake, right? Because these were a people called by his own name. And should his own people who are called by his name not represent God properly to the world, God has a problem with that. Keep that in mind, by the way. If there are a people who are called by God's name and those people are not representing him properly in the world, God has a problem with that, okay? So God wanted to make for himself a name, and he did that, didn't he? He made for himself a name. Now, if we go back up to the top of this section, Isaiah is saying, I want to recount, I want to think about, I want to reflect on what? The steadfast love of the Lord. And that's said twice in verse 7, at the beginning of the verse and at the end of the verse. Do you see it? All according to the abundance of what? His steadfast love. Now, if you have an ESV, it says steadfast love. But I want you to make a note if you're a note taker, because in, in the Hebrew, it is one word, it is not two. And it is hesed. It's probably one of those Hebrew words that you've heard before, okay? Hesed. And this hesed of God is steadfast love is okay, I think it is better translated God's covenant faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness. And this is very important for understanding the character of God, the nature of God, what he will do in the future, what he did do in the past, and then what he does in the present. Isn't that kind of, I don't know what other kind of time frames there are. Okay, There's the future, there's the past, and there's the time we're living in right? 
understanding God's covenant faithfulness is very important to understanding how God is going to act now in the future and how he did act in the past. And it is according to his covenant faithfulness. Is God faithful to his covenant promises? Yes or no? Yes. Is that always evident to the people? No. That's why we have a problem. It's not always evident to the people. Before we go to the next section of Scripture, um, just make a note of Psalm 136, because Psalm 136 is probably one of those that you're familiar with. Psalm 136, 26 verses in Psalm 136, and 26 times in each verse. What does it say? His steadfast love endures forever. And of course, it's that same word, hesed, the hesed of God. It endures forever. The covenant faithfulness of God endures forever. It never ends. God's covenant love, his covenant loyalty, his covenant steadfastness, his love, it never ends. Never. Exodus 15, verse 13. This is known as the Song of Moses. Do you remember the Song of Moses? When did Moses sing and write a song? Okay, right after they were miraculously delivered from Egyptian captivity and God killed all their enemies, horse and rider he threw into the sea. Remember all that? And so there is a, there is a song uh, reflecting on what? God's steadfast love, God's covenant faithfulness. Here's what Moses says, Exodus 15, 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Okay? And that actually, that verse might just be perfect for this very time in history for the people of Judah. This is what they want to have happen. They're thinking, God, you have a covenant faithfulness to your people just like you did then. And just like you did them, you redeemed them. Redeem us. And just like that, you guided them by strength to your holy abode. And that's what they want too, isn't it? They want to be guided by the strength of God's hand. Where? To Zion. Lord, redeem us and take us to Zion just like you did in the past. This is what they want. So, a sentimental reflection on God and his faithfulness. When God's covenant people are in danger, God's covenant faithfulness comes through, right? This is true. But to the people, it seems as though God's covenant faithfulness is not coming through. And that's the whole focus, that's the whole point of all these verses that we're reading here today, is that we're looking to the future with confidence and hope, we're looking back in the past and we're seeing that God has always been faithful, but we've got an issue in the here and now. And so let's read about that in the next portion of our text. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 15. So now we begin a longer section on covenantal reflections. We had hopeful reflections of the future sentimental reflections of the past, and now covenantal reflections dealing with the here and now, okay? Because they're wondering, they're confused. God's character is faithful, right? I'm having a hard time understanding it right now because we have some issues, and God was faithful in the past, and we believe God will be faithful in the future, but I'm having a hard time here and now in the today of it. So let's read what they have to say about their circumstances, and their confusion. See if you can pick up on the confusion that they have. Look down from heaven and see. So this, is, this is the people, or Isaiah himself, who is representative of the people, speaking now to God. Okay? Look down from heaven and see. See us from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion, they are held back from me. You are our father, though Abraham does not know us. Why might that be? Because Abraham's dead. He doesn't know them. And Israel does not acknowledge us. Why might that be? Because Israel was known as the northern part of the kingdom, and they are Judah, southern part of the kingdom. But they're saying, but we are your people, right? You are our father, our redeemer, and from of old is your name. O oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and why do you harden our hearts so that, we fear you, so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. 
Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And we're going to continue on, but just pause for a second. I want to make sure we understand what's being said here so far. There's, the, there's a confusion as to, we are your people, Lord, and you have been faithful in the past, and you always are faithful. We believe you will be faithful in the future. But would you please just look down at us from heaven and see what has happened? Because why would you call to God unless you feel as though God has not seen your circumstances? That's when you call out, isn't it? If God has already seen your circumstances and he's dealing with it, why would you call and say, see me and deal with me? No, it's because they feel abandoned. They feel abandoned by God that God doesn't see them. And so come down from heaven and see and look at all that has happened and all the adversaries that we have, okay? Go to verse 1 now, chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and that the mountains might quake at your presence. To rent, tear. You, might, you live in the heavens, right? And so tear open the heavens and just come down here already and do something and act, and then the mountains might even just quake at your presence. And when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water boil to make your name known to your adversaries, the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned, and in our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind, they take us away. There is one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. You have hidden your face from us, you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are the work of your hand. So be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. But your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness and Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. All our pleasant places have become ruins. And will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Okay, so did that image come through for you of why they're so confused and hurt and calling on the name of God to rip open the heavens and come for them? They're confused because they do believe that God has faithful character. They do believe that God is faithful to all his covenant promises. But as they see it in the here and now, they're confused and they're wondering whether God will be faithful. And so there's a thinking over of all the things that have happened. We have enemies. They're coming and they're destroying us. They're tearing apart your sanctuary. And God, are you okay with this? That's the big question. And verse 12 tells us that, right? Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? And will you keep silent? Will you afflict us so terribly? So here's the confusion. In summary, it might say, God, we are the people of your covenant. We are the people of your own choosing. We are your servants. And will you now deliver us as you always have? That takes us up to this point. Are we all there together? And will you do it for your namesake? So, what we have beginning in chapter 65 then, God now begins to talk. Okay? So we have the people thinking about the future, the people thinking about the past, the people thinking about and calling on the name of God because they're confused, and now God begins to talk. What does God have to say about their circumstances? Are you curious to know? Because here we have where God is going to now begin to speak and he's going to clarify some things for them. He is going to bring about covenantal realities, whereas they all they have is covenantal reflections. 
right? All they can do is think about and wonder about and be confused about certain things. God's going to clarify what they're so confused about. And God is going to clarify what it means that he has faithful character. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 1. This is God's response to all that has just been said. It seems, it seems strange. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Here I am, here I am, is what I said to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks. They sit in tombs. They spend the night in secret places. They eat pig's flesh, broth of tainted meat in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near, come near to me. I'm too holy for you. They are like smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. Okay, that, that's ultimately God's answer. God, will you be okay with this? That, isn't that what was just asked? Will you restrain yourself? Will you keep silent? Remember, that was what was asked in verse 12. And God just said, uh, I will not keep silent. But when I speak, I think it's going to be something other than what you expect. And that's why you're confused. You're confused at what my loyalties are and what the situation actually holds. Because if you want me to tear open the heavens and come down, I don't think you're going to like what I'm going to do. So, he continues. I will not keep silent. I will repay. I will indeed repay to their lap. Both your iniquities, your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains, they insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord. As new wine is found in the cluster, they say, don't destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it. So just want you to notice right now that there's two groups of people that are actually the same, and that is the servants of God and the chosen of God. And these are going to be kind of on repeat. The servants of God and the chosen of God. For my servants' sake, that's in the plural, servants' sake. I will not destroy them all. I'm going to bring offspring and from Judah and uh, to my mountains, and my chosen shall possess it. My servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture of the flocks. In the valley of, the valley of Acre, a place for herds to lie down. For my people have sought me. For you, but you, you forsake the Lord and you forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. I mean, that right there in verse 11, you set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. This is talking about going to those who uh, tell fortunes and things like that, ancient practices that God specifically forbid them to be part of, okay? Basically, the people are doing everything God said, don't do that. Okay? Just like a child. It's just, I told you not to do that, and that's the one thing you decided to do. Right? I guess I brought it to your attention. So this is kind of how the people of Israel have been. And he's listing all these things. You ate the stuff I told you not to eat. You went to the places I told you not to go. You sacrificed to the things I told you not to sacrifice. Right? You did all these things. The things I said not to do, these are what you did, and now you are calling on me. You are calling on me to rip open the heavens and come down and deliver you I don't think so. But now, for my servant's sake, I will not destroy you all. Because I have a plan. And he talked about that plan at the beginning. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me and found by those who did not seek me. And we're going to get back to that, but we need to finish here. Verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. You see a distinction between groups of people. So, who are the servants of God? There's, there's, there's the you, and then there's the servants. 
you want me to rip open the heavens and come down because you believe that you are my servants. But let me tell you something. My true servants, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing for gladness. Oh, there it is. But you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen, there it is again, for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name. So he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Now, I know we just read a lot of text there. But as I said, I believe that we can bring together all that's being said in this big storyline, okay? So, covenantal realities. God is bringing clarity to what they were previously thinking. They wanted God to come and deliver them because they were God's chosen, they are God's servants. And so they, in a sense, deserved God to come and deliver them. But what God is saying back to them is, you've misunderstood who my true people actually are. You think just by having that blood in your veins that I'm going to come and deliver you? That I'm going to rip open the heavens and destroy all your enemies before you and pamper you? You think that's how it works? And then he begins to tell them about all the ways that they have failed him and how there's groups of people. There's you and then there's my servants. And he said, now there will come from Jacob And from Abraham and from that line that I promised, there will come those who are my servants and my chosen. But it doesn't mean that it's all. But my servants will eat, but you, you're going to be hungry. Okay? In Romans 10, Paul quotes from uh, the beginning of this long section we just read. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 1. Paul quotes that. And he gives an understanding of it in the New Covenant era. Okay? And that's very helpful for us, isn't it? I have said to you before, I get very excited when I have New Testament authors quoting Old Testament text because what we can know is that they are bringing us into the world where we can understand these things in light of all that Jesus has done. Okay? So... uh, There's kind of two worlds that we need to live in here right now, isn't there? There's like the world of the text in the past in Isaiah and their life. And then we need to live in the New Testament, New Covenant era in all that Jesus has done and how we're to understand that historical situation today. And there's kind of a lot involved in that, isn't there? Yes, but that's good because I think there are more riches to be found the deeper we dig. And so what's being said here. Paul quotes, and he gives us a better understanding, a clear understanding of what was actually being said. How does Paul understand it? He quotes quotes it in Romans 10, 20, and he says that Isaiah is bold. He says, Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And in context, what is Paul talking about? It's what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, if you've been with us. What did it mean? That there's a mystery of the gospel. And what is this mystery? that the gospel has come to the Gentiles. Those who did not ask for him, those who did not seek him, God gave the gospel. And so the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles, to all people, came. And when did God plan this? Was it by, well, I mean, I had a people, and they turned out not to be so good. And so I had to come up with plan B and get a different people, and maybe they'll be better. We're not any better, by the way. Uh, But God didn't come up with this as a plan B. As we all know, God has no plan B. It is always plan A from the beginning, and nothing can change his plans. So God was planning this all along. And if you go and you follow Paul's argumentation throughout the book of Romans, you can see this storyline all come together. So what is being said here, and how best should we understand it? I want to state this in terms of how we might apply it. I think, it'll, I think it'll maybe communicate to us. Are you ready maybe for some application? Here was a group of people that rejected the Lord and lived their life any way they wanted to and yet expected the blessing of God on their life. And so we can say very generally, 
You cannot reject the Lord with your life, with your affections, with your devotions, and expect that God is going to bless and deliver you. It's not how it works. You cannot utterly reject the Lord and expect him to give you whatever it is that you want, whatever it is going to bring you joy and gladness. You expect that of him because he is God after all and doesn't he love all people? Well, God, now's your time to love me. I'm giving you an opportunity today. Giving you an opportunity to love me. Now, I've always rejected you. I have always only served other things. I have always only worshipped other things, including myself. But today, because I'm in trouble, I'm going to call on you and I expect for you to act. That's what they were saying. Did you hear it? This is what they wanted. They did nothing of what God asked, and yet they asked him of everything. Rip open the heavens, Lord, and come down. Today we need you. You, you have those people in your life, right? That like they reject you, they reject you, they never talk to you, they don't really want anything to do with you until they're in trouble, and then they want the world of you, right? Well, if we do that in our personal relationships, how much more do we do that with God? I'm going to reject you, but then when the time comes, I want you to bless me, please, openly. Now, I'm not going to do anything in return. Uh, I just expect you to do that because you're a good, you know, you're a good God, and you bless me, right? That's what you do. You, you give out blessings. I hope you see that our God is a God who does give out blessings, but he also gives out wrath. He is a God of justice, but he is also a God of love. He has his people who he loves and protects and brings in and shelters and kills all their enemies. You know what our greatest enemy is? Death. Sin and death. And doesn't he come and conquer both of those enemies? Slay them for us? And then he holds us and he protects us and he's going to bring us to that place that he has promised. All that is being spoken of here that the people wanted most out of everything in life, the thing that was going to bring them joy and gladness forever, Jesus Christ does for his people. He has done this for us. Who are the true servants of God? Because they thought they were the true servants of God. They thought they were the chosen of God, right? And if we are chosen by God, that means I'm special. Someone, someone has equated this with, and it's completely wrong, so let me just start by saying that. It's just so wrong, it's worthy of repeating. It's just, someone said when God chose his people, now this is talking about at any time in history, right? When God chose his people, it's like when you go into the grocery store, into the meat section, and there's choice meat. You say, now that's the good meat right? This is truly a, an illustration that a professor at a seminary uses to help people understand how God chooses people. That if you were chosen by God, guess what? You were the choice meat. That's the one you, you picked. You're like, ah, that one doesn't look. That has a brown spot on it. Don't get the browns, the gray. Stay away from that one, right? But, oh, this one looks prime. It says choice. It's like it's grass-fed, grass-finished, right? It's like, uh, this is, okay, this one I'm taking and I'm keeping and I'm protecting. Is that right? Or does God look, and what the reality of the situation is, God looks and he says, all this is terrible. It deserves to be thrown in the trash. I don't even want to give this to my dogs. But yet, I'm going to love and protect and change and transform this one and this one. And they're not worthy of it, absolutely. None of them are. None of them worthy. I'm just going to tell you, you are not choice meat, okay? But who is the chosen of God? Because they had a conception in their minds that just by having certain blood in their bodies, it made them that. And therefore, they expected the blessings of God on them, even if they rejected them with all of their heart and their affections and their thoughts. And God is telling them, this is not the way it works. I'm sorry. And by the way, those enemies that I destroyed at the beginning, God talks about how their iniquities were going to be punished, right? And so they had a misconception in their mind about who even the enemies of God are. They didn't realize that they had actually placed themselves as enemies of God. And what a scary place to be to not even recognize. And isn't this the blindness of the world? You are an enemy of God, but you don't even 
know it. That's scary. That's sad. So where does this go? Who are the true servants of God? Yeah, I was going to go into this a little bit, and I, maybe I won't, but there's this idea of servant. The, the word that's used, and it's a word that you should probably know in Greek, is doulos, which is slave or servant. You know that word. It's the same word used here for servant. It's not always servant. We have one word in English, servant. Um, it's, it could be daokane, or it could be, well, it could be different, some different words, but it's the word used here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament here is doulos, and this is a word that is picked up by our New Testament authors, right? It, Paul, for example, uses this term a lot, and he calls himself what? Paul, a servant of God. Same word used here, slave of God, a bond servant of God. In other words, I am not my own. I am bound to my master, to my Lord. And if you truly are bound to your master and your Lord, are you going to do everything that he says not to do? Right? So there's the distinction between what a servant is. If you are a servant of God, guess what? You do what he says. If you're not a servant of God, you don't do what he says. But a big misunderstanding is I'm going to do whatever I want and not what he says, but yet I'm going to call myself a servant of God. Wrong. You're not a servant of God. Servants of God serve him. They do what he says. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said? Many will come and say, Lord, Lord. He's going to say, no, I don't think so. Call yourself by my name, but you don't do what I say. That makes you not my servant. Right? Now, does that leave room by God and his grace and his mercy that now there are times when we don't listen to the Lord, right? So this is not about keeping legalistic rules here, but this is about a general disposition of a heart of willingness to bow before God's lordship over our lives. Okay, moving on to our last section, okay? See a lot of text, but we've covered it decently this morning. Would you agree? Okay. Well, like a B, B, B plus so far? Okay. I always grade my sermons. Normally I get like a C, C minus. All right. Chapter 65, beginning in verse 17. Four. Oh, why is the four there, right? What does it say back in verse 16? That the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, all the things that you're going through are going to be wiped out anyway. The things that you have your eyes set on that are causing you such distress in your heart and you don't know what to do, and you're confused as to if God is faithful, say, well, listen, there's a time coming when all this is going to be forgotten anyway. It's going to be wiped out. But why? For, and here's how, here's how that happens. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered, and they will not come into mind. So here it is. Are you ready? We finally made it. Verse 18. So be glad and rejoice forever into that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Do you see it? I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people, and no more shall it be heard in it the sound of weeping, cry of distress. Yes, everything we ever wanted. Isn't that right? That's all, that's all they ever wanted. No more shall there be an infant who lives but only a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a a uh, hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build another inhabitant. They shall not plant another and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear their children for calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. They will eat, uh, the, uh, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the dust of the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Okay? A lot of those very, very similar things that we have read in recent weeks, right? All right. One thing that's interesting here that I just want to point, point out to you is in verse 22. In the Greek, now we know that the old Old Testament was written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, but in the Greek version, um, it says, they shall not, this is verse 22, they shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat, for like the days of a tree, right there, see that? 
In the Greek it says, and like the days of the tree of life, they shall be my people. Uh, which kind of changes the way that we're thinking about that, right? Uh, but when does all this happen? Verse 17 clarifies, doesn't it? Behold, I create what? New heavens and a new earth, and this is how it will be there. And all the things that you ever wanted to bring you joy and satisfaction, I myself, the Lord, will provide to you. And so this great Zion, this great place and the inhabitants of the people of God in utter righteousness and perfection, that is yours. And all that is coming will be yours. So the questions remaining are then, who are the people of God? Who are the enemies of God? What is God's ultimate plan? What does God's covenant faithfulness look like? And how should the present circumstances be understood? They should have took a clue when God allowed, actually sent, caused the Assyrians to wipe out the northern kingdom, the Babylonians to wipe out the southern kingdom, and now he gave a remnant to remain. He's not going to utterly wipe them out. He promised that. And so a, a remnant returns. They rebuild Jerusalem. Oh, all is good, except not all is good. And then they rebuild another king, uh, uh, city and another temple, and oh, it's destroyed later, Right? And still all these things that are going to bring joy and gladness and that there's never going to be this hurting or crying or suffering or pain. Any of these circumstances that rob your joy and gladness will all be gone. It's hard for us to even imagine that, isn't it? It's hard for us to even imagine a place of perfection. And yet over and over, and as you've seen the last several weeks here in Isaiah, this is what God has promised to us. But for those who do not belong in the city, there is a great warrior whose garments turn red from him killing his enemies. So two extremes here, right? Uh, where's the middle ground? Our culture likes a middle ground, do they not? A little bit of this, a little bit of that, all is good, doesn't matter. Um, middle ground is where we like to be, right? Middle ground theology, middle ground life, middle ground obedience, middle ground whatever. Let's just let us be comfortable. Comfort is what we want. Comfort is life. And I'm telling you, that that is not to be found. Instead, what God does is he makes an absolute separation. The separation is in terms of light and dark and how much separation is there between those two things. Okay, And so God has this kingdom here of righteousness and joy and fulfillment and gladness. And then over here, death, destruction, doom, decay, smoke. Right? Not good. Okay. I want to end our time uh, in... Oh. I could very easily double our time this morning. I'm not going to do that. But there's just, there's so much here. And I want to give you a, just a hint of two of them before we close our time. And the, I'm going to take you to three passages, okay? Hey, I've got more than that, okay? So I'm going to, I just had to make a decision. I'm going to take you to three of them. Two of them are to see contrast. And then the final one is to hopefully stir in us greater uh, application and emphasis for what we just studied today, okay? So let's first of all look at Romans 9... Or, Scratch that. Revelation 19. Just a few verses. And they don't need much explanation because all that we have said, it's going to be very, very clear what's going on here. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Don't you remember what they said? God, rip open the heavens and come down. He's about to do that. And for some people, it's real bad news. Okay, Revelation 19, 11. How's it start? I saw heaven open. Uh-oh. Something's coming out of it. And behold, a white horse and one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed, listen, in a robe dipped in blood. That sounds like someone we've read about. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
And listen to what happens next. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh are the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It just happened, didn't it? Now contrast that. Contrast that scene with another scene, Romans 5. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. You got that horrible picture in your mind? Now that is a true picture of what is to come for some. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, that peace makes a lot of sense right now, doesn't it? Do you need peace with God? Everyone does. If you do not have peace with God, then you have a big problem because he has justice to come for you. How do we have peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we have peace. And through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So now the picture is we are looking forward to what God will do. You see how we just became the people who are now looking into the future, having confidence for what God will do for his people in the future. He will destroy all of our enemies. He will do all that he has said because he has perfect covenant faithfulness. Is God in covenant with you for all those who are in Christ Jesus? He is faithful to his covenant promises. He has steadfast love for you, for all those who are his servants, his chosen, his people. All this will come to pass. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now that picture makes a lot of sense for the here and now because you might be confused as to if God is being faithful to his covenant promises for you because didn't he promise he was gonna destroy all your enemies? But yet here we are with enemies, whether it be your own body, your own mind, relationships, the world at large, whatever it may be, you're feeling that, aren't you? And your longing and your expectation, what you want more than anything is what? I just want peace and rest and gladness and joy already for eternity, but it's coming. Look to the future. There is hope for you, and so there is confidence for you, even though you might suffer here. But you should rejoice when suffering comes. Why? Because suffering is going to change you. Suffering does change us, doesn't it? And how should you understand that? God has forsaken me? Or God is changing my character to be better reflective of him? And doesn't God want a people who reflect him properly on this earth? Yes, and he does that through suffering. He changes us through suffering. What a God we have. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the choice meat. Wrong. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one might dare to die, but none of us are good. Okay, none of us are righteous, none of us are good. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from what? from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is coming when he tears open the heavens and he comes down. He's coming with wrath. But if you have been justified by the blood of Christ, oh, because there will be blood. But if the blood of Christ covers you, you will not have to shed your own. Because the wrath of God that was coming for you has been taken out on Jesus. That's amazing. All right, last one. Okay, I told you, only three. Only three. This one's very good. It leaves us with some application and for um, not just application. I, I think it just brings everything together. This is Peter, okay? Second Peter 3. A beautiful picture 
of where we should be setting our eyes presently. What do you have your eyes set on, by the way? I know. Everyone in this room, you're, something is happening the rest of today. I don't know if your eyes are set on a nap or your eyes are set on work or your eyes are set on some kind of relationship you're going to have or your eye is set on, you ever, have you heard of bed rotting? Anyone heard of this new concept of bed rotting? Yes? Yeah? Okay. Not good. Don't bed rot. Okay? Don't just sit. This is a new thing. Okay? You just, you just sit in your bed and you rot away all day and you just don't do whatever. You just sit in your bed. You got your phone. What more do you need? Okay? Not good. I don't know what you have your eyes set on, but you have your eyes set on something. And what the goal here and what the motivation is, set your eyes on the proper thing. Set your heart on the proper thing. Set your mind on the proper thing because it will change every single moment of your life. It will. And this is how we need to be encouraging each other. This text right here. Are you all there? That was filler till you got there. Second Peter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Beloved, in both of them I'm stirring you up sincere mind, by the way, of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That's what scoffers do after all. They scoff. What more do you want them to do? I mean, really, I'm, I'm asking that. You're out in the world and you're in, with sinners and you complain that all they do is sin. Right. And they make fun of your beliefs. And they say that these things can't possibly be true. You can't possibly believe in that Bible, right? That's ridiculous. Scoffers scoff. That's what they do. And they're here among us. And that was true then. It is true today. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? So as to make fun of us. We say that Jesus is coming back, don't we? And they say, oh, yeah. How long ago did he promise that? 2,000 years ago, you say. Well, I think you, maybe you should be looking for something else. Maybe it's time for you to give that up. Where is his coming? You say he's coming. Where is his coming? It's okay, by the way. It's okay that he hasn't come yet. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately, however, overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God and that by means of, of these, the world that then existed, w- existed was deluged with water and perished. Okay, we know that's talking about Noah, right? Noah and the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Uh, we just read about that day, didn't we? When are all these things going to take place? When are the enemies of God vanquished? When are all those enemies killed? Well, the enemies are all put down. There's a new heavens and a new earth, and God brings us into his righteous, perfect kingdom where nothing can ever happen. But what about the now? The heavens and earth as we know them, that is all the universe, the physical universe as we know it, it's being stored up right now. You know, just like they didn't know the flood was coming, but God was storing it up. He's waiting just until that day. The same is true today, but it's being stored up, not for water, but for fire. And once all things are burned as they melt, well, let's just let Peter say it, okay? I don't need to summarize it. Verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years one day. What is time to him anyway? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient. He's a good God, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, it will come, and it will come how? Like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolve, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Got that scene? Since then, all these things are to thus be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God? 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, here it is. We are waiting for what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't that what we're waiting for? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting, you are waiting for these things, right? Since you are waiting, be diligent. Do you hear that? If you are one who is waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, here is your call today, no matter what happens. I know there's a lot of the doomsday, right? I don't know if you're a doomsday theorist or whatever it may be, right? But there are a lot of like doomsday things, theories out there. It doesn't matter what happens tomorrow, I'm telling you. It doesn't matter. Whether today is, is, is and tomorrow's like today or tomorrow is like all things, you know, whatever, you know, the, wh- the, wh- whatever that the big thing is that people think is the electromagnetic pulse that's going to happen, right? Up, up, and it's like all electronics are dead or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The call on your life doesn't change. Keep your eyes where they should be always. Now, things are going to happen. You're going to say, whoa, uh, you, you, like, you get caught here and all the stuff that's going on. But we have to keep our eyes in the right place so as to know how to act. If your eyes are in the right place, you know how to act. If your eyes are in the wrong place, you've lost focus on how to act. Keep your eyes on the new heavens and the new earth and the promise that is to come because it is coming. And as you do that, be diligent with your life. Isn't that what it says? Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things that are hard to understand which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. But you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and you lose your own stability but instead grow in the grace and the knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ to him be glory when both now and to the day of eternity this is our hope and our goal this is where our eyes ought to be but we know that when that day comes there are two scenarios that are going to take place there's going to be the ingathering of god's people to all eternity and righteousness and joy and gladness forever. But for the others, when the heavens are ripped open, there is going to be wrath to pay. How do you escape that wrath? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath that was meant for you is placed on him. He did not stay dead. He rose from the grave. And he now is seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for that day to come. And he will come. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, let's pray together.